Hey everybody, I'm Andrew and welcome to the Dawn of Sapiens podcast. So it's been an interesting week. My dog got fixed, so if you hear banging, that's just him strutting around the house in his e-cone, doing his best Queen Elizabeth impression. But it's also been an interesting week in the world of paleoanthropology. That's because Lee Berger and John Hawks recently released three papers on the mysterious Homo naledi. Of course, when it comes to Lee Berger, it always becomes dramatic, uh, not just because of Lee, but because he champions the open access format. And a lot of old school anthropologists aren't the biggest fans. In their paper, they presented evidence for symbolic wall carvings and possible intentional grave burials. If true, these would be the earliest known grave burials, even earlier than our species. But because it's open access, they release the results as they are found. You know, and these old school anthropologists, they really can't stand this. They argue that they want rigorous, quote, science to be done. But in the past, this meant a team of four or five anthropologists secretly analyzing fossils and data for shit, what, 10 years, sometimes 20 years. And even then, you have to take them at their word for it because no one else has access to the source material, to the fossils or whatever other data they have. But Lee's team released results knowing there's still more work to be done. In my mind, this path allows the public to come along for their ride, which is never really a bad thing. I find it funny how passive-aggressive these other guys get towards Lee. And I'm not real sure, but I suspect that Lee kind of trolls him because he'll don his Indiana Jones attire while making the rounds in the media. And I swear I sometimes see him winking to those in the know. But moving past the drama, Homo naledi is actually real fascinating. In some ways, they seemed primitive, and in other ways, they seemed as advanced as Homo sapiens. Personally, I hope two things come out of Lee and John Hawk's research. I'm crossing my fingers they can get DNA from all these fossils they've excavated. But I also want to know whether this species was hairy or hairless. Uh, and if you watched my YouTube video on Homo erectus, towards the end I talk about this, and you'll know why I want to know whether they were hairy or hairless. So there was another study released last week, and it looked at megafaunal extinctions in Africa. You know, there's a common misconception that Africa is the only continent where megafauna didn't go extinct. This is often attributed to the fact that humans and African megafauna co-evolved, and this supposedly explains why we didn't kill them off. But it's not true. This study demonstrates that megafauna did go extinct in Africa, and actually much earlier than we would have thought. It basically lets humans of any species off the hook. In Africa, at least. And what you see in Africa today is actually the smallest of the African giants that survived. So last episode was a sprawling, rambling mess where I riffed on Dan Carlin's episode on prehistory. So today I thought I'd focus on a single study. And this study, it has some badass research in it. I think most of us have heard about ancient DNA and its ability to extract DNA from something like Neanderthal fossils. Well, this study is in a subfield of ancient DNA called environmental DNA, and it does a wonderful job of demonstrating the power of environmental DNA. It also happens to throw some light on the overkill hypothesis in a region outside of Africa. So before I dive in, 
I think it would be worth talking a little bit about environmental DNA in the context of ancient DNA. I'm going to loosely define ancient DNA as the analysis of DNA from an individual that lived more than 100 years ago. This is a little vague, but if you Google official definitions, they aren't really any more precise than my definition. In the last 20 years, the field and technology of ancient DNA has exploded. If you think hard enough, I'm sure you've read stories or at least seen headlines describing how scientists have successfully extracted DNA from discovered fossils. In anthropology alone, DNA has been extracted from hominid species like Neanderthals and Denisovans. In the early days, this extracted DNA consisted mostly of fragments or chunks of DNA, and often only from DNA found in the mitochondria. But more recently, full genomes of ancient Neanderthal, Denisovan, and even hybrid individuals have been sequenced from discovered fossil remains. These genomes have allowed scientists to compare similarities and differences between these species. These genomes are great references in the library of hominin genomes. When DNA sequencing technology and techniques advanced, environmental DNA emerged. Sometimes I think of environmental DNA as a type of magic, because rather than extracting DNA from newly discovered bone or tooth fragments, ancient DNA can be extracted from a handful of dirt or a cup of lake or ocean water. There was even a study that showed that researchers could identify the animals in a zoo by extracting DNA from the air. Environmental DNA isn't limited to ancient DNA, as that study showed. It can also be used for conservation efforts. One difference between environmental DNA and other forms of DNA extraction and sequencing is that researchers aren't necessarily trying to sequence whole genomes. This makes sense because loose DNA found in dirt or water is much more fragmented and scrambled than DNA still residing in its original bone or tooth. Instead, researchers look for fragments of DNA that are unique to a particular species or family of species. You can think of these fragments as fingerprints. Paleoecologists aren't trying to mine information from the DNA itself. Instead, they want to learn the identity of the fragment. Just like a forensic technician would compare a discovered fingerprint, to an existing database of fingerprints. Paleogeneticists compare DNA fragments to an existing library of full genome sequences. This allows them to put a face to the fragment. A single handful of dirt might contain DNA fragments from hundreds or even thousands of species. And obviously different layers of a drilled core of soil represented different time periods. This is what makes eDNA so powerful it allows scientists to reconstruct ancient ecosystems. This 2021 study I want to explore does a fantastic job of demonstrating the power of eDNA. It's almost mind-boggling how much insight it offers tens of thousands of years into the past. It's the next best thing to being there yourself. In this study, Yu Cheng Wang and his collaborators, actually I should comment on the amount of authors listed in this paper. I'm not going to count them, but from what I can tell, there's at least 50 co-authors, and that kind of shows how much work went into drilling core samples, analyzing and preparing soil, and DNA for this study. But anyways, this paper used hundreds of sediment samples to reconstruct the Arctic ecosystem and climatic trends from 50,000 years ago to the present. 
Using DNA from these samples, they were able to identify the presence of countless plant and animal species. I'm not going to go through each section of this study, but it's linked in the description of this episode, and it's also open access, so I encourage anyone who's curious to read it for themselves. Some of the takeaways that these researchers were able to pull out of the DNA are kind of mind-blowing, and those nuggets are what I want to focus on. To avoid going down a paleoclimate rabbit hole, I'm going to describe general climate trends using relativistic comparisons over the last 50,000 years. 50,000 years ago, the global average temperature was about 3 to 4 degrees Celsius cooler than today. After this point, the Earth's temperature gradually cooled until about 20,000 years ago when the glacial maximum arrived. During the glacial maximum, temperatures fell to about 6 degrees cooler than today and this persisted for several thousand years, after which a general warming trend occurred until about 12.9 thousand years ago, where an abrupt cooling period caused temperatures to fall to about 4 degrees Celsius compared to today. This period, known as the Younger Dryas, ended about 11.7 thousand years ago. At this point, Earth was at its warmest any time in the past 100,000 years. When you view this trend on a graph, What's so striking about it isn't the fact that it was this warm, but that it was so consistently warm until today. This period of the last 11,000 years is the interglacial that we are still living in. This is the bubble of protection that allowed everything you see today to develop and exist. Farming, ranching, civilization, NASA's, cities, Twinkies, Crocs, anal beads. All of it exists because we are living during a remarkable, predictable climate trend. Before I jump into the meat of this study's findings, let me reduce the climatic trend of the last 50,000 years to one bite-sized chunk. From 50,000 to 20,000 years ago, Earth's temperature was cooling. From 20,000 to 13,000 years ago, Earth began to warm. 13,000 to 11,700 years ago, Earth experienced a brief cooling relapse, after which it warmed up to its warmest point of the last 100,000 years, and has been that way ever since. So this request might seem out of place, but hang with me. I want you to visualize that scene from The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy is getting high on opium in the poppy field. Oh. Oh. What's happening? What is it? I can't run anymore. I'm so sleepy. Now take away Dorothy, the opium, the Emerald City in the distance, the talking lion, scarecrow, tin man, the witches, and the yellow brick road. If you were to then add mammoths, woolly rhinos, caribou, bison, horses, arctic hares, wolves, voles, grass, and some woody plants such as shrubs, that wouldn't be a bad outline of what the Siberian tundra looked like 50,000 years ago. That's because the dry, cool climate kept trees and aquatic plants in check and allowed perennials, annuals, and biennial flowers to dominate. The diversity of these flowers increased between 50,000 to 26,000 years ago. After this, flowers remained dominant, but the diversity began to decrease. The grasses and flowers kept horses and caribou thriving. They also fed mammoths, who actually preferred woody shrub when they had the choice. Voles, being the many cows that they are, 
had all the grasses they required in the Arctic tundra. Because wolves mainly hunted caribou, this ecosystem was suitable for their survival. Now, before I continue, I think I need to emphasize something I mentioned a while ago. In the Arctic tundra, flowering plants remained dominant for thousands of years after the last glacial maximum. But during that period, the extreme cold severely reduced the number of species in the ecosystem. The diversity never recovered after the cold receded, and yet flowering plants remained dominant until the warming period, known as the bowling alarod interstadio, which I failed to mention earlier, was reached about 14.6 thousand years ago. And it interestingly ended when the cold shock of the Younger Dryas began 13,000 years ago. After this, the extreme warming of the interglacial began, and it remained. Okay, so I'm about to say something that I somehow seem to talk about on every video, article, or podcast, but it's actually relevant in this case. Ice sheets suck moisture from the atmosphere. This means that cold climates generally result in less moisture and rain. Up until now, this was true of the Arctic tundra, but beginning 11,000 years ago, it was no longer true, and this resulted in the rise of the trees in the Arctic. As the ice sheets melt, they release moisture into the atmosphere and make many environments wetter. This means that trees can now survive in many regions of the Arctic. This makes me wonder if flowering plants would have better resisted this encroachment if diversity hadn't been lost. Remember that many of those species were lost in the extreme cold of the last glacial maxima. They were likely the species that would have thrived in warmer environments. Regardless, that didn't happen. I'm going to quote how the authors describe this period of transition. Quote, Shortly after the Younger Dryas, summer insulation peaked and atmospheric CO2 reached Holocene levels. Previously abundant plant taxa such as Artemisia and Poa rapidly declined or vanished locally. Other plant taxa, particularly boreal trees and prostrate shrubs, appeared and later became abundant, suggesting that there was a shift from open, cold-adapted tundra steppe to a mosaic of herbaceous and woody plant communities. The floristic diversity of this more mesophilic vegetation increased during the early Holocene as climate continued to warm and effective precipitation increased but then declined during the Middle Holocene, end quote. Flowering plants and temperate grasses continued to decline into the Holocene. Today, that means much less flowers and grasses and much more trees. Next is what, to me at least, is the most interesting part of this study. The sequenced eDNA offers a remarkable insight into how these animal populations responded to this changing landscape. These trends of changing vegetation in response to climate change were general trends. In reality, trees didn't sweep across the Arctic and leave nothing but trees in their wake. Instead, the Arctic became a mosaic of forests, woodlands, and grasslands. Different regions had different amounts of these tree vegetation types. But as tree presence increased, less habitat was left for many of these animals. And this research showed that mammoths thrive on woody shrubs, while horses didn't eat woody shrubs and required flowering plants and grasses. They actually showed that of all the megafauna in the region, horses were the most sensitive to available food types and least flexible to changing vegetation. Mammoths would have eaten grasses and flowers if woody shrubs weren't on the menu. 
Arctic megafauna survive best in cold and dry conditions. The authors argue it's because precipitation affects their ability to secure food. Layers of snow makes grazing a harder endeavor as the grass and flowers can be locked under several feet of snow and ice. So what ultimately happened to these species when the Arctic began to warm? The field of eDNA is so exciting because it is beginning to flex its muscle and answer some of these long-standing questions that have caused decades of debate in not only academic halls, but even pubs, bars, and clubs around the world. As forests expanded, the populations of horses withdrew to the fast-retreating grasslands that remained. In Alaska and the Yukon, they held out until about 7,900 years ago. If you open a map of Russia and center it, and then scroll to Russia's most northern point, you will come across the Tamir Peninsula. This is the last stand of horses in the Arctic. They held on in this peninsula until about 5,000 years ago. As a quick aside, it wasn't clear to me which species or population the authors were referring to because they simply used the term, quote, horse throughout this paper. I had to dig into the supplement to discover their reasoning. I'm going to let the authors explain it by quoting from section 14.2 of the supplement. Quote, in fact, in the mitochondrial phylogeny, Equus cabalus, Lambi, Scotty, and Perzuvalski are not represented by distinct clades. It has been suggested that although both Equus Lambi and Equus Scotty appear to be morphologically distinct from cabalus, they may not be genetically well-defined species. Therefore, we use the term, quote, horse to refer to any of these four species, end quote. That might be another interesting example of phenotypic plasticity. But anyways, back to the crisis of the disappearing grasslands. We just saw that environmental DNA shows that horses disappeared from the Arctic by 5,000 years ago. The authors don't really discuss the ecology of woolly rhinos in this paper, but they do offer some information on the last survivors of the species. They disappeared from Eurasia near 14,000 years ago but others managed to hang on for another 4,200 years in northern Siberia, where they went extinct about 9.8 thousand years ago. Like horses and mammoths, woolly rhinos are grazers and rely on the presence of open grassy tundra. It's likely that they survived for so much longer in northern Siberia because this region was one of the few places that was yet to be invaded by woodland. The extinct steppe bison, or bison priscus, once roamed across modern-day England, Europe, Asia, Beringia, and North America. But by 12.5 thousand years ago, it was extinct in Alaska. Once again, its last refuge was found in northern Siberia, where it disappeared 6.4 thousand years ago. And that leaves the mammoth. Mammoths are often identified by the mitochondrial clades they belong to. There are three major clades not surprisingly named clade 1, clade 2, and clade 3. Clade 3 existed in Europe and northwest Siberia. Clade 2 lived in central and northeast Russia. Both of these clades disappeared by 30,000 years ago. Clade 1 is broken down further into two different haplogroups. Colombian mammoths, which fall under a designation of clade 1c, were found across much of the American continent. 
they went extinct about 10,350 years ago. The last clade, clade 1DE, belonged to the woolly mammoth who lived along the coast of central and northeast Russia. These survived all the way until 3,900 years ago in, wait for it, northern Siberia. These, along with the dwarf woolly mammoths of Wrangell Island, were the last of their kind. I just ran through a number of species and a whole lot of dates. The point I was trying to make, and I hope it came across, is that as climate warmed, these species died out at different times, but the remnants of these species all made their last stand in northern Siberia. They all retreated to the coldest, driest, grassiest, and most treeless environment left. The fact that eDNA has the power and precision to reconstruct changing ecosystems from tens of thousands of years ago while mapping these species' attempt to survive is fucking amazing. And the authors generated insightful ecological information from these same eDNA samples. The described relationships between these species is what, to me, really boosts this research. eDNA research is beginning to answer long-standing questions and many mysteries of the prehistoric world. In this case, it was determined that if caribou, hare, and vole are in an environment, then it is statistically likely that horses and mammoths also occupy the region. This shows the equilibrium of the Arctic tundra that lasts for tens of thousands of years. Another connection was one where if caribou existed on the landscape, wolves were statistically likely to also be there. This tells us that wolves didn't consistently target mammoths, horses, or even hares. Wolves were caribou killers. So far, I haven't mentioned humans, and you're probably wondering if they make an appearance in this study. Human occupation was sparse before about 4,000 years ago in the Arctic, but they do get a mention in the article. Their connection is surprising and probably disappointing to some. Their only statistical connection is to the Arctic hare. If humans occupy an area, only Arctic hares are statistically likely to also be in the area. This is interesting because it naturally leads to the question, were Arctic hares the main dish of ancient Arctic peoples? That's what the data says. It also says that mammoths wouldn't bat an eye if humans were in the area, probably because they knew they weren't on the menu. That actually reminds me of that human trackway that was found in New Mexico not too long ago. It's interesting for many reasons, but for now, what's important is the mammoth and giant sloth tracks crossing the human footprints. When the mammoth crossed the human footprints, it maintained the same speed and direction, whereas the sloth seems to have reared up on its hind legs, presumably to smell for the human, and turned around and hightailed it out of there. The sloth was scared. The mammoth didn't give a rat's ass if humans were around. Both of these examples push back on the idea that as humans enter new territory, they killed off megafauna, at least in these regions, and at least for some species of megafauna. The authors of this main study explain it this way, quote, Given that humans occupied northern Eurasia sporadically from at least 40,000 years ago and continuously after 16,000 years ago, the late surviving Tamir mammoths potentially encountered and coexisted with humans over at least a 20,000-year interval, therefore giving no support to the human overkill model that postulates the mammoth extinction occurred 
within centuries after the first human contact. For at least a hundred years, academics and the general population at large debated and crafted stories about how and why so many megafauna species went extinct. It's remarkable that new technologies such as ADNA and the emerging field of proteomics are beginning to answer these long-held questions with data. Before I wrap up the episode, there's one thing I should probably mention. Some have questioned the accuracy of eDNA when it comes to dating. For example, geologist Joshua Miller out of the University of Cincinnati and Carl Simpson out of the University of Colorado argued that because decomposing bodies can be continually re-exposed to the surface and leave old DNA on younger soil deposits, a discrepancy of thousands of years could occur between presumed date of the DNA and the actual date of it. The author of the original study, Yu Cheng Wang, out of the University of Cambridge, replied that if this was the case, the DNA from these species would be widespread both geographically, i.e. horizontally, and temporally, i.e. vertically. Instead, what they see is environmental DNA is restricted to small areas and stratigraphic layers. They give other reasons why the dating is likely very accurate. I'm not going to get into them back and forth, but I'll link to both sides in the show notes. It's a good showcase of how I think scientific debate should be conducted. Technological boundaries will continue to be pushed, and new discoveries will continue to be made. It's an exciting time to witness science in action. In fact, only a year after this main research paper was published, another team published an environmental DNA article that dwarves this one when it comes to distance into the past. Where this paper dealt with samples 50,000 years old and newer, the new open access paper, linked in the show notes, reconstructed a 2 million year old Greenland ecosystem. This is the oldest DNA of any kind ever sequenced. And until we invent time machines, eDNA will have to be our ticket to the past. You can find more content at dawnofsapiens.com or on my YouTube channel, Dawn of Sapiens. For suggestions or comments, or just to reach out, you can reach me at dawnofsapiens.substat.com.